This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. Governments at all levels have seen dramatic increases in the availability and use of data over the past decade. The push for data-driven government currently has intense interest at the federal level as the U.S. government develops an integrated federal data strategy that drives a cross-agency priority goal to leverage data as a strategic asset. And pending federal legislation would require agencies to designate chief data officers. Many government agencies are awash in data but struggling to analyze and make sense of it. The exception is in cases where a government agency has appointed a leader to manage their transition to a data-driven culture. How can we realize the promise of data-driven government? What lessons can be learned by pioneering chief data officers? And what are the core competencies of successful CDOs? We'll explore these questions and so much more with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Data-Driven Government, the role of chief data officers. So, Jane, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. I'm so happy to be here. So the idea of using data to make decisions in government is not new, as you point out in your report. It's just getting uh, increased attention now in the age of big data. What are some of the major initiatives that set the foundation for what you call data-driven government? Well, I guess one of the biggest ones and one I'm really excited about is that having a federal data strategy is something that is in the president's management agenda. So that's pretty exciting. And in a couple of weeks, there'll be the next release in what I think is a smart way to roll this out, which is incrementally and with uh, stakeholder input. So that's a big thing at the federal level. But at the city and state level, there is a rapid pace of adoption of the idea of having a chief data officer. So, you know, the first draft of this paper went in, and then there was an appointment of a CDO in Virginia. And then a couple days before the paper got published, while it was in formatting and so on and so forth, North Dakota appoints a chief data officer, and Nebraska's appointed a chief data officer, and, you know, and on it goes, Baltimore. So I think the acceleration of recognition by executives, you know, agency heads in federal government, um, you know, mayors, governors, they get it. And 
we better get on the train, you know. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, you know, acceleration. And I want to get into that because uh, more recently, the, the velocity and variety of data initiatives in the federal government has accelerated. But what are the two factors? And you point out in your report, uh, what are the two factors that have accelerated the use of data across all levels of government over the past decade? So there's two things. Uh, demonstrable results and democratization of the tools and skills, right? So demonstrable results can be, you know, we use data analytics and we got a 20% increase in efficiency of our process. Uh, We use predictive analytics to find fraud. $1.3 billion takedown uh, by the HHS, Office of Inspector General, when they uh, found people fraudulently prescribing opioids. I mean, that's a big problem that's being solved with data. Um, And one that I think is is um, interesting and also fun is that uh, we in the data nerd world don't <laughs> often make local news, right? Just doesn't happen. But City of Chicago, for their first predictive analytics project, took on trying to figure out how to better allocate resources for rodent eradication. Interesting. Yeah, when I asked the CIO why she chose that, she said, well, you know, there's no lobbying group in support of rats. Anyway, they made the local news not once, not twice, many, many times. They made the local news. Now, you know what? That takes the person who was in charge of streets and sanitation from being a um, mid-level bureaucrat, you know, to being like a government star by using data. That woman who ran that project then turns around and says, you know what? I'm going to actually take night school classes on analytics. And to me, that was a wonderful example of the transformation of culture where all of a sudden the cool kids are using data, right? Not just in the data shop, but in the agencies that do the work of government. And that's pretty cool. They're just not playing with data. They're actually applying it practically. Yeah. So so for me, the demonstrable results is the thing that takes data from the fringes to something that we can relate to, that we can talk about, that we can tell stories about. And being able to tell stories about it is important because, um, you know, one of the chief data officers I talked to said to me, you know, you might be Lord Algorithm, but if you can't explain what you're doing, no one's going to buy in. No one's going to jump on board. So, um, so having demonstrable results that you can explain, visualize, make a compelling case, that's important. And that's really happening a lot now. Um, the other piece is democratization. And what I mean by that is 10 years ago to do complicated statistical uh, manipulation, you needed heavy-duty hardware software. And you needed, you know, super brainy PhD people. So the tools were expensive. The skills were uh, less available. Now, what I see in the marketplace now, state and local government, federal government, also in nonprofits where I work, is you've got millennials coming into the workforce. And they might have actually gone to a hackathon or taught them, you know. Talking to some kids yesterday that learned how to do data visualization at a hackathon. Now they're all excited to apply that when they finish school. So we've got these tools that are easier to use, cheaper, and kids are using them in school. They come into the workforce and they want to use them. So we've got to catch up with the kids. So that's, I think, accelerating this. And it's it's really an exciting time to be in this space. And you point out in your report that, you know, many agencies are awash uh, in data, but they're struggling to to analyze it. So we talked a little bit, but but what is what is a chief data officer? What exactly uh, do they do? What kind of act, common activities do they engage in? And, and perhaps even more importantly, you could tell us about the sort of evolution of realizing the significance of having a data leader in an agency. Okay, so there are a lot of questions embedded in there, but I'm going to start with the defined CDO. I can't okay. because. 
every chief data officer is different. I mean, I've talked to, you know, so there are 20-ish CDOs in cities. There are uh, over a dozen in states, um, 15 or so in federal government. Um, there isn't, there aren't any two who are exactly alike. And so almost all of them have responsibility for open data, almost all of them. Where there's analytics, you know, predictive analytics, machine learning, natural language processing, those kinds of sophisticated uh, advanced tech, uh, techniques, where that stuff's being done, it's typically in the CDO's shop, but not everyone does it. Um, GIS, you know, mapping and looking at patterns of where where is their need, where, where are services being delivered, where is there a gap, really important stuff. Sometimes that's in the CDO office and sometimes it's not, right? Smart technology, Internet of Things. Sometimes that's in the CDO's office and sometimes it's not. You know, I was in a city where I was traveling to, to do some speaking and I noticed some sensors. And uh, as I'm in the cab coming back from dinner, I see all these sensors and I go meet with the chief data officer the next morning. I said, so cool that you have all these sensors. What, what, you know, how are you capturing the data and what are you doing? And he said, we have sensors. So not every CDO is doing every one of the portfolio of activities. But, you know, open data typically in the CDO portfolio, when there's data literacy, which there's just not enough yeah. of, unfortunately, um, uh, where that's happening, it's usually in the CDO shop. Mapping, sometimes yes, sometimes no. IoT, it's it's all over the place. So from what you see from your research, uh, so the CDO's role, depending on the agency, is tailored to the particular mission of the agency, correct? I mean, is Two things. It's, it's tailored to the mission of the agency, to the charge that they get, you know, Okay. A lot of the CDOs, particularly in the federal government, all but yeah. one, are the first ever CDO in their organization. So they're very tightly coupled with what's the founding mission, right? The, the cabinet secretary or the agency says, I want to hire a CDO to do X, Y, and Z. So that kind of initial charge from the key executive is the first half of what right. defines what a CDO does. Because if my boss says I need to do X, Y, and Z, guess what? I'm going to try my best to do X, Y, and Z. But then the second piece of it is, what am I good at and what am I interested in? And that is the thing that I see differentiating CDOs that, you know, I'm curious about this. I want to learn this. I want to try this. And the wonderful experimentation spirit that I see out there is really people pursuing their passion. And they're thinking, what if we applied analytics to this really important problem that government should solve. That's a great way to put it. How does it demonstrate its financial value? There's, there, there are some significant ways that uh, perhaps you can highlight those quantifiable projects where the CDO or data itself is justified. So I mentioned before the $1.3 million takedown of fraud uh, regarding opioids. There was another fraud takedown of a of a billion dollars at uh, the HHS Office of Inspector General. The Postal Service Inspector General is also uh, getting significant return on investment. You know, it's much easier to get an ROI when you're looking for fraud because there are dollars there. But, you know, we've also seen things like efficiency improvements. So the city of Chicago used analytics to look at its restaurant inspections process, right? People who go visiting Chicago go to restaurants because they're really, really good. But, you know, you could get sick if you go to a restaurant where they're not using safe food handling. Well, in a city with, I think it's 11,000 or is it 30,000? Anyway, they don't have enough inspectors to do every restaurant on time. So what they want to do is go to the riskiest ones first. So how do you develop a risk model? Well, they had 33 different variables in their big data model wow. that allowed them to get to the riskiest ones 
first. And because of that, you can't really quantify the people who didn't get food poisoning because of it, right? But it sure makes me feel good when I go to Chicago and go to a restaurant that I know that the inspectors are now armed with data. So you kind of hinted at it, but is there sort of like, you know, the intangible return on investment uh, afforded by by really having a data leader, whether it's a CD, whatever you call it, what's the intangible uh, intangible value? So um, there's a couple of things. First of all, there's faith in government, which, as you may know, is at an all-time low. Mm-hmm. And sort of what we see is that the faith in government is um, – it's a little bit better at the, the the more granular we get, you know, the the more local, um, and a little less so uh, the more national we go. So the city of Buenos Aires actually ran an, an interesting experiment where the mayor made something like thirty public commitments, and I remember being invited there to speak and hearing him talk about his public commitments. And and when asked my opinion, I did say I think thirty is too many, but he's actually delivered on almost all of them. Really amazing. Most of us in our lives are busy getting up, getting to work, you know, getting stuff done, get home. You know, most of, most people don't wake up in the morning saying, I'd like to go to my government's web portal and see what's going on, right? Uh, so there's a very low level of knowledge in Buenos Aires about what the government was doing and even what it was publishing about what it was doing. So they ran an experiment where they brought people in and asked them about their, you know, their trust in government. And then they exposed them to this uh, well, it was an experimental and a control group. It was all very well done by a bunch of PhDs. But um, the experimental group got to look at dashboards that showed the mayor promised to do this, and here's where we are in progress. Here's what you know what we're going to do to keep moving in a positive direction. And then they were asked again uh, afterwards, and uh, there was a 64 percent increase in faith in government just oh, wow. by knowing what government was doing. Zero change. Zero change in what the government actually did. Just knowing about it made a difference. And, uh, you know, if you book travel on, you know, the, the one of the travel sites shows the little hourglass, like, we're working, we're working, we're finding you flights. Because the research shows that if we know work is being done on our behalf, we feel better about the weight. And so I think that connects to this sense of if we know the government is working to do stuff for us, we have more faith in government. And I think that's wonderful. You know, one of the places where I think the public does probably have good faith in government is when it comes to emergencies, right? No, when we call 911, we're not calling the private sector to come help us, right? Um, And where I live in Boston, um, you know, the government handles all kinds of emergencies, including snow. So Kansas City, Missouri, wonderful, wonderful data informed, data-inspired, great city, well-run, really used a lot of data. They had low public satisfaction with uh, the plowing, right? We get snow. We get snow. So anyway, they had low public satisfaction. And uh, so what they did was the city manager did a a tweet along riding in a snowplow, showing this is what we're doing. And they also did a public education campaign saying, this is what we do in a snowstorm. We plow curb to curb only in the major arteries. We do it within, you know, X hours, whatever, you know, just just, just it's sort of explaining this is what we do. OK, public information campaign and tweets cost very little. Right. And public f- satisfaction went from 50 percent to 62 or 3 or 4 percent. Anyway, it went wow. up significantly yeah. with zero additional public expenditure. Right. Yeah. 
So there is a huge amount of untapped potential to increase faith in government by putting more data out there, telling good stories about the stuff that government's doing. In terms of trusting government, there there are a couple of other examples that I want to give in. Because I'm a Bostonian, I'm going to have to throw in a little shout out to Beantown. So the city of Boston chief data officer recently redid the entire website of the city, and it's all user-centric design. So it's, how do I pay my parking ticket? How do I do this? How It's not the department of so-and-so. And um, it's, it's beautiful visually. They took a ton of work to get it done, and they had public engagement, feedback. They had committees of people. And, you know, in a lot of places, what you find is that CDOs kind of are competing against each other to see who can publish the most. <laughs> in Boston, this is the uh, former CDO who did this, was so brave. He said, you know, I don't actually need to have high numbers of what I publish. I want it to be worthwhile. And so in this migration from one data portal to the next, he actually took out some obsolete data. He's like, we're cleaning the files. This doesn't matter. This is old. We're going to keep the new. And so, um, so I was quite proud as a Bostonian to see that Anyone who goes to the Boston government website, I think, is going to have more faith in government today than they would have, oh, the one that was there before was so awful. Yeah. I mean, it was probably good at the time that it was done, but it was old. And, you know, the technology moves quickly. So I need to give a shout out to my city of Boston. Um, another shout out to great pioneering city in terms of data, which is the city of Chicago. And they've created this amazing public engagement with data that I haven't really seen as as deeply in other cities. But uh, once a week, there's a Chicago hack night. And in fact, the now former chief data officer of the city of Chicago, who served wonderfully for many years, Tom Shank, he was a regular participant in Chicago hack night. And the opening came for chief data officer. And so this was sort of a place that incubated future leaders. Um, So Chicago Hack Night is where city and civic hackers get together once a week and work on real problems. And that's something that I think we could replicate in other places. Another is um, uh, they have a cut group, civic civic user testing. And so they bring people in and... For the last few uh, platforms that the city has rolled out in Chicago, they brought in not super brainy data science people who build the things, but real typical users to say, what's it like to use this? How's the navigation? And they take feedback and make improvements so that it is, in fact, user-centric design. So those are ways that I think we are moving the needle just a wee bit on faith in government now. That's for people who use government services online. I get that not everybody does that, um, but I think we're starting to move the needle a bit. So, Jane, why is the large volume of data collected by government so, quote, underappreciated, underdeveloped, and underused? So I think there are a couple of reasons. The first is that we're busy doing other things in government, right? Um, Most people don't take a job in public service saying, I'm going to use data. You know, if you work at the VA, you want to help veterans, right? If you work in education, you want to help people learn. You know, data is kind of an enabler of all that. But it's, for most people, it's not the reason we serve in government. So I think that's reason number one. And then, you know, coupled with that is the crisis of the day that we sometimes are dealing with, particularly depending on the positions I was in. My last government position, we had a lot of front page above the fold bad news that we were distracted, distracted from mission on. Anyway, So we're busy doing other things is, I think, one reason why we don't um, see as much data-driven government. And then 
The second thing is a lot of the people who are in leadership positions, who have come up through the ranks and who are career civil servants, came into government at a time when we didn't have big data and when it wasn't required to know. You know, sure, we've lived through uh, the Government Performance Results Act and all kinds of these efforts to bring more data, more evidence, but a lot of managers can get by without knowing that stuff, right? And so I think that's a huge, huge area of opportunity for the future is to create both digital literacy, which to me is being able to interact with electronic um, means, and then data literacy, which is to understand what do the numbers mean? How can I use this information? How can I get insight about my mission, my stakeholders? Um, And that's a huge area that I think will help us close that gap and not have vast volumes of data collected by government and then not used as well as it could be. What are the core characteristics, Jane, of a data-driven mindset? So there are three things that matter. One is to be technically competent, either that you're the kind of person who can build a data warehouse or that you're the kind of person who can manage competently to get someone else to get the data lake or, you know, all that kind of stuff that's the nuts and bolts infrastructure. And then to be an innovator. And then the third thing is to be able to deliver. Because if you've got great ideas but can't deliver, forget about it. And one of the sort of personal characteristics that I think is most important is curiosity. And I'm going to quote the social scientist James Q. Wilson, who said, I love this quote. He says, every topic I've written about begins with a question. How do police departments behave? Why do bureaucracies function the way they do? I can honestly say I didn't know the answers to these questions when I began looking into them. And I think someone has, you know, he had a really long career and published lots and lots of books. Right? You think he's a really smart guy, but he admits he doesn't know the answer at the beginning. And I think that curiosity is one thing that I've seen in successful CDOs is that they know they don't have the answer and they want to seek it. I love that. I love that. Um, And then uh, coupled with that is the willingness to be wrong. We we all pay attention to success, but, you know, one of the people I interviewed said, the greatest teacher in science is failure. What a great statement, isn't it? And the thing is, sometimes we're embarrassed of failure, but we shouldn't be. So, you know, what are some of the challenges these CDOs are dealing with? It's important to start with strategy, but very seldom do they have a boss who says, I want you to do this job and you can take some time now to set a strategy and think about it. You know, very few of us are given the luxury of being able to set a strategy. So I think that's a handicap. Another one is, of course, hiring talent because the pay scales in government aren't always keeping pace with pay scales in the private sector. And so you want to bring in analytics talent and you've got to find the right people who are willing to make a career of public service or come in, spend a few years, get, in my opinion, we can get experience in government at a young age that you cannot get in the private sector. Um, but that's a challenge is finding the right fit. So another one of the challenges for a new CDO is that they may initially face customer resistance, customers who sort of are skeptical that data is actually going to make their work better and that it's kind of going to slow them down. Another thing that I worry a little bit about is the fact that the technology changes so rapidly. It's really hard for any of us to stay up to speed on what's the newest, what's the greatest. Um, And even, you know, when CDOs come together, they want to hear from each other. You know, you're using that product. What are your uh, challenges with it? They really want to hear from their peers because they're such a small group. And so 
in an environment like that, vendors can have more power than they normally would. And so I worry a little bit about that. Why is the large volume of data collected by governments so underappreciated, underdeveloped, and underused? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. How is Maryland attracting and retaining businesses in all regions of the state? What industries are growing in Maryland? How does the Maryland Department of Commerce promote the state and enhance its economic prosperity? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Mike Gill, Secretary, Maryland Department of Commerce. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, Mondays at 11 a.m. on Federal News Network. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Data-Driven Government, the Role of Chief Data Officers. So, Jane, your report, uh, Data-Driven Government, the Role of the Chief Data Officer, does a wonderful job profiling five CDOs and their agencies. Um, I'd like to sort of take this segment and kind of highlight each one of them. And the first one you, you talk about is uh, the U.S. Uh, Agency for International Development, USAID. And you point out that it's one of, among uh, one of the leading federal agencies in using data to make decisions. Perhaps you can elaborate on the role of the CDO and, and any other high points, but I was really interested in their theory of change approach. So first of all, I want to give a shout out to this CDO who um, the report actually concludes with a quote from him that I'm going to read because it just is so wonderful. Um, so Brandon Pustajowski, who um, was among the first CDOs to be appointed, and th the order that these folks appear in the document is by their tenure. Oh, yeah. So um, he's been around. So he's been around a while, and he has this to say about the role of being a CDO. He says, "We're listening." We're iterating. We're moving forward. There's still so much left to do, but these are exciting times, and the best days are ahead of us. Now, this is a guy who has uh, – USAID is in 100 countries around the globe, and they're in the developing world. My last experience in the developing world, the lights go out. Internet service is terrible. Sometimes there's no phone service. Sometimes you're around people who speak only a local language and, you know, no English. And, and in that environment, he's – collecting data, getting it transmitted back to D.C., and then publishing it out in this amazingly easy-to-use format. It's wow. remarkable. So he's got a development data library. Anyway, he's got a all the researchers have to contribute all the data on the research they're doing out in the field so that other researchers don't do the same thing. Now, that's great, right? That's, that's good government. And then he's got something called um, Dollars to Results where – it's an open data portal for any dollar 
that USAID spends in the field, I can drill down and look at what's the project, where is it, what type of project is it, and then this makes me so happy as a taxpayer. The uh, Foreign Aid Explorer does something that we so seldom see in government, which is it goes across the silos, right? It's really easy to exist in a silo, but this has um, Department of Defense, uh, Department of State, U.S. Treasury, HHS, data all in one place. And you can look at it by type of, you know, is it training? Is it technical assistance? Is it research? You can look at it by type, but you can also look at what problem are we trying to solve? You know, is this an environmental? Is it, you know, health and HIV AIDS? So I think it's, um, you know, as a taxpayer to be able to see with that level of granularity what's going on out in the field all around the globe is just phenomenal. Um, you had a question about him, but I went on and on about how wonderful the the. Um, the oh, you want to talk about the theory of change? I it was okay. Interesting. So the theory of change really gets at the fact that this guy understands the importance of data literacy, and in a distributed environment with yes. you know he's got eighty missions around the globe that have people in them, and he's tr- he's trying to get at. Uh, so the theory of change is essentially. Availability, accessibility, awareness, and capacity, right? So availability is, do we have the data? Okay, great. Accessibility, it's great to have the data, but is it accessible and and can people use it? And then awareness, okay, it's great to have it, but, you know, if you build it, they will come. Well, a lot of times in data, that's not true. So we have to actually build awareness of it. And then the fourth piece, capacity, is that he realizes that data literacy is something that doesn't exist for, you know, and I'm not going to divide into millennials and then those of us who are too old to be millennials, but really the the generations of mid-level and senior level managers are not people who are digital natives. They're not data natives. Um, and uh, so this CDO has done a great job and has this framework for thinking about the challenge. That framework follows nicely with your capability maturity model. I thought. Before we get into the next uh, case study, that you, or profile you called it, um, what, what are some of the lessons that folks can learn from his experience? But also, what advice would the USAID CDO give to somebody who perhaps is becoming a new C- CDO somewhere? Right. Well, one of the things that I took away from my conversation with this guy is that he has real serious credibility. Okay. He is respected in his agency because he's got a background in delivering foreign aid out in the field. So I'll read the quote. He says, I've been on the ground in over 50 countries and been shot at. I've been in refugee camps for extended periods of time. I've slept on the ground with rats blowing at my mosquito net and been woken up the next morning by earthquake aftershocks. Now, this is a guy who knows the mission. So he's really credible in the mission sense. And then he's passionate about what he's doing. He's got, um, you know, some CDOs come from the private sector. They come from the public sector. They come with technical background. They come with policy background. They come with financial background. Um, This is a guy who's really more policy and international development background. That gives him the credibility with his organization that he's literally walked in their shoes. Um, So that's, I think, an important piece about him. And he's got... You know, when I talked at the beginning of this conversation about, you know, there are like eight or nine different things that some CDOs do. He's not responsible for GIS and he's not responsible for the innovation shop at USAID, but he is responsible for all the open data, for um, enterprise tooling, for data literacy, for analytics. So he's got a lot of responsibility in his scope. And what he says in terms of his advice is to listen to customers. And of course, he does a great job of that. And then I also think he's 
he's wonderful about acknowledging where he's strong and where he has, you know, where he doesn't have skills. You know, he's so he says, um, if you're not an expert, you need to hi- you need to understand that and then hire someone who's an expert. So I think that's great advice. I mean, not just for CDOs, but really for all of us. Right. Like, let's be honest about what we're good at and get other people to do the other things that we're not good at. I'm not dry. I'm not good at dry cleaning my own clothes. Yeah. Right. There are things that other people do better than we do. So the next profile you focused uh, you focused on was the Department of Transportation, which you know was the first cabinet department, uh, cabinet level department to recognize the need for a full time uh, data leader, and so they appointed a CDO and uh, Dan Morgan, who was on the show uh, right right after he was appointed. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you learned from that uh, effort? So Dan is an amazing bundle of energy. The amount that he gets done as a very, very small shop. Uh, He's got a team of three, but he started out as a team of one. Most CDOs start out as a team of one. Why was he hired? Because the secretary had a data question and no one could answer it. There was no go-to person for data. And so the position was created. Dan was hired. um, And, you know... There are so many different parts of the Department of Transportation collecting lots of data, but all in their stovepipes. And his job is really as an orchestrator, as a connector. And I think I don't know that I've seen a better example of someone who cajoles data out of nooks and crannies of government and creates wonderful things. Um, The National Address Database is a project he worked on where Federal agencies came around a table, you know, inspired by the next generation 911, um, and came up with standards that are now implemented in 22 states. And the thing is, Dan doesn't have a big staff. He has to do it all with diplomacy skills. So what advice would he give someone? Well, um, you know, when he started, he didn't have any he – was, he was the first cabinet level, so he's looking around like, where, you know, where am I going to find examples? So he actually looked to academic sources. Okay. He looked um, in private sector and in other parts of government that were doing uh, good things with data. And, you know, I'm reminded of um, when Ford created the assembly line for manufacturing cars. He was, he was the first one to do it for cars, and he actually came upon the idea at a meatpacking plant. Interesting. Right. So it takes a brave person to look totally outside their own silo, if you will. And Dan Morgan's one of those people who's unafraid to look outside. And so, for example, he's got a private sector collaboration, crowdsourcing data. They've got a a terabyte of data through their collaboration with Waze to get input from the public about what's going on on the roadways so that they can help design safer roads and save lives. I tell you what. You save lives with data, that's pretty cool. It is. It's great. So the, the next profile you did was on uh, the General Services Administration, GSA. Um, what can you tell us what you learned? What, 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 I, wanted, what I thought was interesting about your, in your report was the, their data-to-decision platform. But, 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 but besides that, what else did you learn from profiling them? Gosh, what did I learn? I learned so much from profiling uh, Chris Rowley. Uh, so Chris Rowley is, the, the, I think, one of the great champions of the idea of 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 uh, self-service analytics, right? So he's got a team of 10 people serving 11,000 people all over the place. Yep. And so he can't do analytics projects for everyone in every office uh, throughout the, the GSA world. And so he's created this data to decisions platform where he gives the tools and then he 
gives training, and he's got this very sophisticated curriculum of training for data scientists, for data coordinators, data stewards, and he's got a, he's got one of the most impressive data governance structures that I've seen anywhere. He really thinks carefully about how the organization is going to consume and be powered by data. So very sophisticated thinker in terms of the organization and the way to change an organization to be more data-powered. And I love some of his customer-facing tools. I could go on their website and actually look at, you know, the square footage of the GSA offices. Uh, you know, it's amazing. Wonderful stuff there. Wonderful stuff he's, he's doing. Did you uh, – Did they? was there any lessons learned or uh, any advice that, that, that he would probably give to a new – Well, one of the things that he talks about is – that we want we want data to be good, but we know it's not going to be perfect. And don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Is is uh, you know sort of um, and and also try to build in quality from the start. He says I don't want people changing the data in the final presentation. I want you to change it in the source system so that it populates out correctly. And so he really he really thinks carefully about this stuff. And in terms of his advice to a new uh, CDO, this is one that. Almost everybody would agree with uh, among the CDOs that I've talked to, which is prioritize the business needs of your customers. You know, can't just be about here's my here's my cool analytics tool that I want you to use. It's what problem can I help you solve? How can we help make government more responsive to what the public needs? And um, so prioritizing. Uh, the needs of customers, and then he also recommends connecting with super users. And when we say that, it's the kind of data community that exists informally in most places now, but that until you have a CDO, you know, until you have the maestro leading the orchestra, you've got all these people doing their data stuff, and I'm doing this with Google Sheets, and you're doing with that with maybe some R, and, you know, all of the people who are interested but don't have a forum to connect and communicate, he really wants to proactively reach out and to be a data evangelist, you know, have the conversation. So the next profile you mentioned is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General. Uh, it established a CDL role with a focus on customer and delivering value. What did you learn from that? So Carol Brzmalkowitz, first of all, was so generous to talk to me right before leaving for maternity leave. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> um, so very generous. Um, so a couple things that I learned from her. And um, she's got a PhD in engineering, and so she's one of these people who she says, I was a data scientist before the term existed, and I think oh. it's important to note that, you know, the first U.S. census happened in 1790, which was at that time big data, right, 3.9 million people, and at the time it was contested, George Washington and uh, Thomas Jefferson thought that it was an undercount, right? So so let's remember that there's always been data in government, there's always been big data, or at least, you know, big for its time, and uh, and there have always been people who would disagree a little bit. But but as long as we, like I say, have data plus, you know, human framing of the data, we can get better decisions um, and recognition of limitations that are in the data. But, you know, we've had social scientists, data scientists, statisticians, you know, the science and statistical agencies, the 13 major statistical agencies, the chief statistician in the U.S., there are tons of people. And when Carol says she's been a data science scientist before the term existed. I think it's important to recognize all of those who, in fact, are scientists. And, you know, some of them actually are sort of thinking like, you know, all these chief data officer people, like they're just, they're just, you know, same, same thing, new name. Anyway, yeah. but that was one thing that I, I took away from my conversation with Carol Persmalkowitz. Another is that many, many 
of the CDOs in state and in federal government report to the CIO. At the city level, it's a mix. You know, it's maybe a third report to the CIO, some report to a performance officer, some report to a mayor. And in the private sector, it's actually a much smaller number report to their CIO. So why am I saying yeah, all that? That's interesting. Carol Brzmalkowitz is a peer to the CIO, to the CFO, and to all the other ins- assistant inspectors general. Okay. That's significant that because significant. she walks in with a level of seniority, with a level of authority that is not the same when you're a CDO who reports to a CIO. Now, I, I think you know people ask me all the time, should a CDO report to a CIO? And there's no definitive answer. Yeah. There are some situations where a truly visionary CIO who values the work of the CDO can vastly increase their ability to get powerful things done. But if you have a CIO who's afraid and um, doesn't want to give up any power or doesn't want the CDO to get some attention, that's a disaster. Um, so one thing that's critical is that she is a peer to the other you know, C-level execs, as we would say. The other thing is that she's in an agency that has a strategic plan and she's responsible for the strategic plan. Now, not every government agency functions with a strategic plan that really guides the work. But for her agency, she's the one who goes to all the assistant inspectors general and says, what are your priorities? And she creates the strategic plan. Well, let's see, if you want to be the person who uses data to power the effectiveness of your organization, what better job is there than to be required by your boss to go meet with everybody to talk about their strategy. So I think that's, to me, that really sets her apart in terms of, you know, structurally where she is. Um, In terms of organizationally, you know, she has some of the same responsibility, you know, data analytics, um, data governance. Um, She has a lot of the same responsibilities that other people have with, with that key difference of the strategic planning piece. And of course, because she's in an inspector general office, she is finding fraud. So she's getting those dollars. Every dollar invested in her organization has a $5 return. That's not going to be true for every CDO because they're not out there finding fraud, waste, and abuse. But that's okay, right? Any Any CDO that can improve customer satisfaction, make government more responsive, or have a 20% improvement in efficiency of work, you know, the, the Syracuse CDO is saving hundreds of thousands of dollars using predictive analytics to find broken water pipes before they break. I mean, it th- th- wow. saves the city money, but it also saves all of us the inconvenience yeah. Yeah. of when you get when the sh- street gets shut down because of the broken water pipes. It's so practical. It's yeah, so I mean, the lots of really lots of um, really stuff. really you know, Boston uh, did a hackathon and uh, got um, for free rerouting the school buses, saving you know over a million dollars. I forget wow. the exact. It saved lots of money and carbon emissions. Interesting. With the shorter route. So there's lots and lots of ways that CDOs are are delivering return on investment, um, even if they can't be the Carol Brismalkowitz five dollars for every one dollar. That's a great. That's a great. That's a great profile. The the last one you had in there was the um, FAA, and uh, in 2017 you point out that they they created the position. What can you tell us? What did you learn from that experience? So um, the FAA, uh, which is you know, part of the Department of Transportation um, has only recently appointed a CDO. So uh, Natesh Manikoff, who is there and came in from the private sector and um, really brings a fresh perspective and has taken an enterprise data management approach. And, you know, he's at the very beginning of his tenure. So it's going to be really fun to watch how he 
enables the organization to do analytics. Um, again, small organization. He started out as a team of one. Now he's got a handful of people um, that may grow over time. But he's scaling by pushing out into the organization the capability of doing analytics. He's also done something really fun. Uh, a year or so ago, they did a um, data awareness week that culminated in a Shark Tank um, competition. And they actually had people from all over the agency competing. And one of the, the winner was a guy who created an algorithm to better predict turbulence on planes. Well, I'll tell you what, isn't, aren't, wow. isn't the entire flying public going to be grateful for that? And it came up with, they just thought, let's that. be innovative. Let's be creative. Let's do a Shark Tank thing. And they had this whole, I, I don't watch TV, but I understand there's like a Shark Tank thing on TV. Anyway, so one of their, one of their um, judges came in a shark skin suit. Now that's fun, right? So who knew, da- who knew data analytics in government could be so much fun? What does the future hold for realizing the promise of data-driven government? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Data-Driven Government, the Role of Chief Data Officers. So, Jane, would you describe the CDO organization's relationship with other data innovators in government? So the entire constellation of innovators in government performance officers, innovation officers, digital services officers, privacy officers, um, all of these new titles that are coming up. And I just saw the other day a director of reinvention in uh, the state of North Dakota, I think it is. And um, what they all have in common is that they're all trying to make government better in new ways, and almost all of them need data. So are there opportunities to be successful as an innovation officer When you don't have a data officer, sure. It's just that if you have a data officer, there's the go-to person who can help you with data. So I think that the chief data officer can be an enabler of all kinds of things, right? They can help with data governance and data infrastructure. They can do standardization. They can make quality better with data. They can also be the one who supplies the other innovators with data. And one area that's understudied now in the literature and that I hope will get some attention is 
what are the best ways for these folks yeah. to work together? Mm-hmm. And, and I think right now it's it's a little bit like they're all st- they're all acting as if they're startup companies, and oh, they're collaborating in most cases because they're these they're all the new kids on the block. They're uh, and they want to help each other. Mostly is what I've seen. But I would like to study this a bit more. So would you describe two models for government CDO organizations that you outlined in your report? Sure. So essentially we have the centralized versus decentralized models. And the centralized model can be thought of as the analytics as a service. I build a team. I have the skills. I have the tools. I do the work for you. And then the opposite end of the spectrum is the decentralized or self-service model. And GSA, I think, is, is one of the great, great examples example. of that. Yeah. I build the platform. I give you training. I give you the tools. And then you do the work because you are the one who, want, who can best prioritize. In the centralized model, I've got to figure out which one I'm doing first. I've got to come up with a strategy for how I, first of all, advertise that I can do the analytics project for you, and then try to sort through which one is the most important, and then do the most important ones first. And then the problem is that if the success of the first few generate interest, then I'm going to be managing demand. Okay. In the beginning, what I've seen is early on CDOs are knocking on doors like, hi, I'm the CDO. I'm here to help. How can I help you? A couple of years later, all of a sudden, it's gotten around that this person can actually deliver value. And a couple of years in, CDOs are having to really manage a big pipeline and, saying, and they have to start saying no to people. So really, at scale, it's the decentralized model that works. At the start, it's generally going to be the centralized model. And really, there's sort of a hybrid, and I think Boston's a good example of the hybrid model where... For certain agencies, the civic, the the uh, analytics team is the centralized provider of service. For other departments, where there is a you know higher level of interest, a higher level of skill, they're the decentralized uh, platform provider. Oh, interesting. Now, throughout our conversation, you've mentioned, uh, you've highlighted some cities, Chicago, Boston. I was wondering if you had any other uh, insights from those experiences as to how are these larger cities using the CDL. So cities have been doing this a bit longer than than states and then the federal government. In fact, by the time of the appointment of the first CDO in federal government, which was the Federal Reserve um, in 2013, at that point there were already six CDOs in cities and one in a county, Allegheny County. So um, cities have been experimenting in this area for longer. And, you know, New Orleans had an officer performance not it, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the person who leads that is is functionally a CDO because in cities the term the the title CDO isn't as common. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got directors of analytics, we've got uh, performance and analytics managers. We've got invention one you mentioned. That's state. actually in a state, state yeah. yeah. So um, at the city level, the titles vary quite a bit. So New Orleans was the first ever performance officer, and then Chicago and New York. And I think one game changer was in New York City. You had a mayor who stayed for 12 years. Mayor Bloomberg had this, uh, or so I'm told, I never saw his desk, but supposedly on his desk there was a sign that said, in God we trust, everyone else bring data. And if you for 12 years run a city with the expectation that data will be used to make decisions, it changes the status quo. And I mean, I think one of the things we, we haven't talked about yet in this interview is 
status quo bias. And in government, you know, some some of us go into government to, you know, be uh, innovators and to change the world and turn everything upside down. But there are a lot of people in government and it's human nature to not really want to change. And so the status quo bias um, in 12 years of being run by a data driven guy, the status quo bias in New York City changed from no data to yes data. And I think that is something that we can think about in, you know, change isn't going to happen tomorrow. It might take us a decade to be at a different level of data. But, you know, when I think about, um, you know, flying later today from D.C. back to Boston, and I really hope that the pilot uses all that data that's on his dashboard of all those dials. But, you know, the pilot's done that. Like, the pilot that does the shuttle does that all the time. He or she might say, I've got this down. I know this route. I'm not looking at the data, right? In government, I would love it if we get to a place where we say, dear God, don't let the pilot work without the dashboard of data, right? Let's not let government executives function without the data. You know, you get a stomach ache and you go to your doctor and your doctor says, oh, I've seen that a lot. I think it's your appendix. Let's take it out. Well, don't you want to collect some data like an x-ray or a blood test. No, 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 no. Let's go without the data on this one. You know, we we expect that data will be used in so many parts of our lives. And I think it's going to be a great time when when we when we really expect that in government and when we and the other thing is let's also realize we need to give government some credit. Um there's a tremendous amount. I the, the biggest takeaway for me of the interviews I did was the passion and talent and professionalism and commitment to public service of the people I interviewed, there's great stuff going on, CDOs, and then all kinds of public servants who are doing great stuff. And I think, you know, sometimes it's easy to forget all the good stuff um, when we think about the challenges. Uh, So that's one thing I want to make sure uh, to mention is that through this process, I came to be so appreciative of the great stuff. That answer is a great way to end the conversation, but I don't want to I don't want to end it until I get to your recommendations. <laughs> so I don't know. You, you, your report is wonderful in the story it tells, but it's also great in the recommendations it makes. Could you give us a, maybe a highlight of some of those recommendations? So I'll give you a couple of thoughts. One is that um, there is legislation making its way through Congress right now that could require every uh, agency and government to have a chief data officer. So I worry a little bit about that in the sense of if it's not viewed as a full-time job, that it just might be that I designate you, the busy, competent person who's already doing 12 things, I designate you as our chief data officer, and then it's not really something you can take on full-time. And so I worry a little bit about the way it gets rolled out. It just becomes a title. Exactly. So I would like for chief data officers to be truly given the authority to get something done and to have a leader who supports them and gives them, you know, it doesn't, there's no magic number of resources. There are, uh, I will say, Cincinnati and Louisville have chief data officers that are functionally party of one and do amazing, fabulous stuff. Not every CDO office has to have 20 people in it. I mean, it's great when they have 10 or 20 people because they can do more. But I would say that it has to be a full-time person. Whether or not there are more than that depends on the mission. What is is that organization trying to achieve? 
And how can data support that? That's what's going to determine do they need dollars and people and so on and so forth. Um, so I guess if I could, you know, if I could only say one thing is, you know, make it a person who is full time and who has the things that we talked about earlier, which is technical competence, willingness to try new things and delivery capability. Well, Jane, I, I think that's um, we've had a great conversation um, I don't know if there's anything else that you, you, you want to make sure we get into, but if we, if you don't, I could, we could end it here. You know, I guess I would just conclude with a huge thank you to those who, um, there are actually a lot of people who spoke to me anonymously. They were so far, they were so far off the record that I yeah. couldn't include yeah. their names in the, and I would like to thank all of them because there are um, almost a dozen people who spoke, uh, but, but I could not list them in the sources section. So the, the, public servants who gave their time to me so that I could write this, I'm just so grateful. And I'm really excited about what's going to come in the next, you know, the next months, years. It's going to be great. Do you see anything in the future besides the legislation that you think is going to be exciting? Well, I I really do think that as the CDOs who are, who are looking at, at data literacy, as they, over the next couple of years, train more and more people to be not afraid of data. Yeah. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Yeah. We'll get this report because it was a wonderful read, honestly. Um, Jane, thank you for coming in. It was great to have you. Thank you, Michael. This was great fun. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Data-Driven Government, the Role of Chief Data Officers. You can download this and other Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. How is Maryland attracting and retaining businesses in all regions of the state? What industries are growing in Maryland? How does the Maryland Department of Commerce promote the state and enhance its economic prosperity? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Mike Gill, Secretary, Maryland Department of Commerce. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, Mondays at 11 a.m. on Federal News Network.